available on his website to help people get unstuck. And I thought, oh, that is such a good topic of conversation because how many times have you felt stuck? I know I have felt stuck where I felt like God couldn't hear from me or I felt like maybe I wasn't hearing from him or maybe I was believing a lie that wasn't the truth. So I am so excited just to share and just to have author and my friend, William Paul Young. Thank you so much for coming on Touched by Prayer. This is going to be so much fun. It'll be great fun. Thanks, Lisa. I always love being with you anyway, whether whether we're on the air or not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, so when you wrote that thing, because you just wrote it just a, I think it was like last week, I think last week. I think so. Yeah. And it was so fun because when I saw it, something leaped into my spirit because I really believe one of the things about the book, The Shack, really helped me to do was to get unstuck. Mm-hmm. It definitely showed me a different version of God. And it showed me the the God, the Papa that I so longed for. So, so what is it like when you say that you're going to have these materials for people who have felt unstuck or to get them unstuck? What, what is your heart in, in trying to help them? Well... That's a great question. And part of it is that there's a, a, a lot of folks who are becoming more and more aware that the systems of religious thought that they grew up with are not sufficient mm-hmm. and, um, and incredibly lacking. And they don't, they, they don't answer some of the deepest heart questions that people have. Um, but a lot of us were, were trained, you know, to have, full certainty and not mystery. And, and a lot of us have been stuck for a lot of different reasons, but I have many of my own people, which are modern evangelical fundamentalists. Many of them are very stuck inside of a paradigm about God. That isn't true about a paradigm about themselves. That also isn't true. And so um, I just wanted to say for those who are on this journey of sort of deconstruction, although my friend Brad Jerzak would say that's a little bit too violent of a word. Um, uh, it's, it's more of, of a, the process of cleansing, you know, thought patterns that are self-destructive and, um, or self-referential incoherence. Maybe that's a good one. That's a Baxter line. And, um, and so these resources are just to help people take next steps with, you know, inside of conversations that I trust. And, um, um, and we'll add, we'll add to it as, as things are helpful, but uh, there are some articles there. There's some, there are some uh, connections to YouTube videos, things like that. So we'll be, we'll be putting more on there just, just to give people a different perspective. And I think, with that comes new, new possibilities. Yeah. I love that. And, you know, one of the things about, and, and we're going to talk about the shock, but I also really want to talk about lies we believe about God, because I sure, think sure. that that's a really important book because there are so many people who have believed the lie. I know I did, like, I didn't think, I didn't even yeah. know 
that that prophecy was possible. I didn't know that prophets still existed. <laughs> that was like a that was a whole new world for me when I found out that there were thing there were people called prophets and sure. that they could actually you know speak what the heart of the father was saying. And I also think one of the the biggest places where people get stuck is in relationships that they have either with their mother or their father. And that can or be, the absence of them or the absence of them, because if you have a father problem, it's hard to see God as a papa or as a father or as a daddy, as I say. And if you have a problem with a mother, if you have some mother wounds or some mother issues, it's hard to see Holy Spirit as that nurturing comforter sure. type of, of the that part of God. So it's like. So the mother and the father, it seems like a lot of people don't have a problem with seeing Jesus. Like they, people, I don't think get stuck with Jesus, but they do get stuck with Papa and they do get, they do get stuck with the Holy Spirit. They do. So, and that's one of the things that the Lord really started to talk to me about were the, the woundings and something, the misunderstandings or the shortcomings. I think sometimes we've had, um, with our parents or in parental roles in our life. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> so I have a great story. And, oh, I love uh, your stories. <laughs> uh, thanks. And have I told you the story about going on set um, and meeting Dwight and Lori Martin? Um, I don't know. Well, I'm, Go ahead and tell it some, again. some of your folks probably haven't heard it. If you even if have, if you have, because it's in one story, it sort of wraps up a lot of what, what you're saying. And, uh, and the issue of being stuck. So, so I, I gave up all the rights of the creative control and all that for the movie and, and willingly, and I'm, I have no regrets about that whatsoever. And, um, so I didn't expect to be involved in the film at all. And I got a call from Lionsgate and they said, would you come talk to us? And I think partly they were checking me out to make sure or to see if I was going to be a problem or, you know, an enemy of the project which I wasn't, never was, because I didn't have any expectations. So everything's a gift. So them calling me was a gift. And um, and I went down and spent a couple hours with them, two and a half hours. And all we did is told stories and cried a lot. And then uh, and then uh, Gil Netter called me. He's the producer. And he said, would you look at the script? And that was a gift. And then would you talk to us about we're thinking about these actors and these actors. That was a gift. And then Lionsgate called me and said, would you fly to Vancouver, BC? And we'll, we're going to take you to the first day's shoot uh, in White Rock, a little town near Vancouver, BC. And would you pray a blessing over the entire cast and crew? That was cool. So I spent a day on set and, uh, and, and I mean, already I'd had these gifts all along the way that were given to me that were, Wonderful. So I didn't anticipate getting another call to come back on the set, but the movie shoots are interesting. They, they have multiple locations. They, they don't shoot in sequence. Like they don't start the beginning and shoot the movie in sequence. It depends on when the actors are available. So they've got more than one set going oftentimes with different actors, different scenes and things like that. So they had about a 60-day shoot up in British Columbia. And right near the end of that 60 days, I got another call. And it was like on a Monday. And they said, hey, would you consider coming back? We really loved having you. And we would love you to come back for another day. This was like on a Monday. And they said, we would like to fly you up Wednesday. 
And then um, that night you'll get a call sheet. We're going to take you to a hotel in Chilliwack, which is two and a half hours from Vancouver airport. And, um, and then your hotel will be there. And then you'll get a call sheet saying what time we're going to pick you up and what set location we're going to take you to because they don't know yet in their scheduling where they're going to be. And they don't know what they're shooting that day either, but that's okay. I don't care. Yeah, sure. This worked out perfectly. So it was all set. They arranged the flight. I was supposed to fly into Vancouver at 1130 on Wednesday. Everything was set. I'm sitting at my office and I go, wait a minute. There's this guy that lives in Abbotsford, which is right next door to Chilliwack, where I'm going to be spending the night, uh, two nights. And uh, his name is Brad Jerzak, and he's a theologian. And I'd, I'd endorsed one of his books, and he and I had been talking about Eve. And I'd met Eden, his wife, but I had never met him face-to-face because he spends a good chunk of time in London as a seminary professor. So I'm, I'm like, I wonder if he's in town. So I email him. Hey, Brad, this is what I'm doing. I'm coming up. Do you happen to be in town, and would you be available for maybe coffee or something? Immediately get an email back that says, um, hey, can I pick you up at the airport? I'm like, yeah, that would be awesome. I checked with transport. They were thrilled because it saved them five hours round trip. And um, so it was all set. And then I get, I get another email from Brad just about two minutes later. And this one's with a photograph. And it says, hey, Paul, while you and I were emailing, I was with my best friend, Dwight Martin. And it has a picture of Brad, Dwight, and a And he says, so Dwight and Lori, Dwight's a business guy, one of my longtime best friends. He's the first person who told me about the shack and gave me my first copy back in 2008. And he says, uh, Brad says, so Dwight and Lori is a spiritual formations director. And so the two of them have a little cottage that they use as a summer cottage up at um, uh, Cultus Lake, which is a lake in the central south interior part of BC. And and so he said, Eden and I are up here for a week. We're going we're to spend the week with, with them at Cultus Lake. And while you and I were emailing, Dwight and I decided to go for a walk. Actually, we were going for a walk when your first email come in, came in. And, and we're about two and a half blocks away from his house. And look, and in the photograph, it's got Dwight and it's got Brad. And it's got this big fluorescent green arrow that says the shack, right? One of the set locations uh, locations was two and a half blocks away from Dwight and Lori's summer cottage, and they didn't even know it. But while Brad and I were emailing, they ran into it. And it's like, how cool is that? I mean, look, there's one of the locations right here. And, uh, and I thought, well, that's amazing. And then Brad adds, you know, your book had this incredible impact on Dwight and Lori. Um, and if there's any way that you could even spend 10 minutes here uh, while you're here, and if you could spend 10 minutes with them, that would be awesome. But three years ago, the youngest of their five children went into a treehouse and gave her life back to God. And they're stuck. They're so stuck. Um, Dwight believes that if he could just read the shack again, he could get unstuck, but he hasn't been able to make it past chapter one. And Lori is just furious. She's mad at God. She's mad at herself. She's mad at life. She's she's just completely stuck. And it's because her daughter is dead. And and it's and it's been three years and she can't get out of this cycle uh, of grief and 
and loss and fury and and I said, wow, we'll, we'll figure it out. Even if it meant staying an extra day, we'll figure it out. Because I don't know what set location I'm going to be at. Who knows how far apart we're going to be. So, so I said, I'll let you know um, when, when I find out, which would probably be the night, the, the first night that I, I'm there. And um, so I fly in. Brad meets me at the airport. It's like meeting a long-lost brother. We have lunch together. We talk shop all afternoon spirituality and theology. And then um, um, he takes me, oh, he takes me to have supper with Eden. And then he takes me to my hotel. And I said, I'll let you know when I figure out where I'm going to go. But um, but uh, Eden and Brad are heading back up to Cultus Lake. I said, we'll figure it out. We'll figure the logistics when I find out. I don't get the call sheet till 1130 that night. And it says, tomorrow we'll pick you up at 930. We're going to take you to the set location at Cultus Lake. So I'm going to the set that is two and a half blocks of where they're spending the week. And, and so the next morning I'm texting Brad as I'm coming onto the set, like I'm two and a half blocks away. And he says, we have food ready for you. So you just let us know. We'll walk down the waterfront, pick you up and take you back. Even if it's for 10 minutes, he said. So I walk onto the set and, and, um, uh, uh, Netter, uh, Gil and Lonnie Netter, the producers and Stuart Hazeldean, the director are in a huddle as I walk onto the set. And part of the reason they want me to come back is because this is where they built the shack. This is, this is where a, a lot of the activity in the shoot happens. Right. And in the, the first day that I'd gone, Octavia wasn't there. Sumi who plays the Holy spirit wasn't there. Aviva Lush plays. Jesus wasn't there. Um, Octavia plays Papa God. And, um, so I, you know, so the Trinity was absent the first day shoot. So in any like physical form. So now they're all here and I'm coming onto the set. And so I walk over to them and I explain the situation. I said, is there any way that my four friends could come on set for the day? And not only did they say yes, they said, absolutely. And 20 minutes later, down the waterfront comes Dwight, Eden, um, Dwight and Lori, Brad and Eden. And they, they step onto this set, uh, which is um, like, I don't know, a 10-acre piece of property that was in between private ownership and becoming a provincial uh, park. And, um, and they step onto this, and I hug Lori. And I don't let her go right away because I can feel all the angst and the fury and the stuckness, you know. And... Um, until I feel something shift a little bit later, I find out she did not want to be there because of all the triggers, you know? And, um, so they're shooting outdoor shots. So they, the schedule says they're going to shoot one scene all morning, you know, and they shoot it over and over and over getting different camera angles and stuff. Break for lunch, one scene all afternoon, break for supper, one scene in the evening. That's the schedule. Don't have a clue what they're shooting, you know? But they're outside shots. They're outside the shack. So you you can't hear unless you're the producer and the director who are sitting in what's called Video Village. It's this big, huge, movable tent. And they sit inside this, and they're looking at the actual shot screens, big, huge monitors, right? And they have headphones on so they can hear what is actually being recorded. And so they're going to they're gonna shoot this scene 10 times, 12 times, 15 times, and then... 
you know, eventually the editors will start picking which shots, which camera angles work the best and the sound and all that. Well, without asking them, they set up five chairs in Video Village for us to sit right in front of the monitors with headphones on so that we could absolutely engage with what was going on. Huge kindness. I mean, on one end, I'm sitting, Brad sitting on the other end, and the three, the other three are in the middle, and we still don't know what we're being shot. Now, for anybody who's seen the movie, this is the scene that is right after Mackenzie's first night at the shack where he has nightmares and he's, he's has a flying dream where all of a sudden he just crashes into the ground and, and his feet get stuck in the mud and he's, he's hearing his daughter, Missy crying out, daddy, daddy as as the perpetrator is running away from him with her. And he is trying to get there and his feet are stuck and he can't get there and he can't make a sound. And, and he wakes up, out of this nightmare and he's just he's just lost and he's furious and and so he comes out onto the porch and papa's got breakfast for him and this is the scene that we're going to watch shot all morning long so we're sitting there and it starts with him coming out the door you know and and uh we're listening to the headset he comes out and papa singing uh, only love can break your heart you know you like Neil Young? <laughs> he, he says, he says, he's fine. I mean, he's okay. And she says, I'm especially fond of him. And he goes, is there anybody you're not especially fond of? She goes, nope. Nope. Not that I can think of. <laughs> and she said, how'd you sleep? And uh, he, he responds with the universal, mostly male response when you're repressing crap. Fine. <laughs> and, and he goes, she goes, Mackenzie, dreams can be important. Sometimes they're a way of opening up the window, letting the bad air out. Mm. And he just, he sits down and he won't touch anything. And you can see he's still caught in his confusion and his fury. And he says, so do you ever get mad? She goes, yes. What, what parent doesn't get angry? You know, well, what about your wrath? And they start by what, you know, and they start this conversation and it's intense. And finally, I mean, we're watching this being filmed, right? And uh, there's no breaks. It's this one shot. And uh, finally she says, Mackenzie, you know what the fundamental flaw in your life is? You don't believe that I'm good. Mm-hmm. But until you believe that, oh, no, and she says, but I, and I am. I, I am at work in everything you consider to be a mess for your good. But until you believe that I'm good, you're never going to be able to trust me. And he says, why would I ever trust you? My daughter is dead. And there's nothing you can do to change that. And he gets up and smashes the glass off the table and walks off. And we're sitting in Video Village going, and i glance over at dwight and laurie and they're in shock right and the director goes cut reset and we watch it again why would i ever trust you unless you believe that i'm good you're never going to be able to trust me why would i ever trust you my daughter is dead and there's nothing you can do to change that and the third time after the third time 
Lori gets up and walks out of the tent and I follow her out. And then she just kind of collapses and, and, and weeps. And then she turns around, walks back into the video village and sits down and watches it again and again and again and again. And we break for lunch and overcomes Octavia Spencer and loves on him and wraps him up in her embrace and, and overcomes Aviv, Jesus, and Sumi, the Holy Spirit. And they all just love on my friends. And after lunch, we sit down for whatever we're going to watch in the afternoon. And it's the scene right after the kitchen scene with the nail scars on Papa's wrists and, mm. and Mackenzie sitting on the porch and Papa comes out. They're looking at this bird. Papa is and says, see that bird, Mackenzie? That bird was created to fly. And you were created to live loved. But sometimes pain is a way of clipping our wings and we forget we were ever created to fly. And he goes, why did you bring me here? And she says, because here is where you got stuck. Mackenzie, today's your flying lesson. And we're, we're bawling. I mean, we're just bawling. And, and that night when they said goodbye, they said, Paul, you'll never, you'll never understand what this meant for us. And I go like, you're right. And I'm thinking, I didn't have any creative control. I had no rights. Lionsgate didn't have to ask me. They asked me once to come on set. And that was wonderful. They didn't have to ask me a second time, but they did. And, and then I get this nudge that, oh, yeah, I got this guy I want to meet that I, uh, you know, and, and I contact him and he's walking in the woods with a friend who's in the middle of being stuck and full of heartbreak. And, and while we're emailing, they run into one of the set locations, which turns out to be the one that I'm going to because it's two and a half blocks away from where they're staying. And they get to come on the set. And these are the scenes that we get to see shot. And, and it's because of those scenes and that day they got unstuck. You know, I love that. It's such a great story. And it's, it's like such a great story. Oh. And, it, and it shows just like she says, Octavia says, as Papa, you don't believe I'm good. Right. But I am. I'm not who you think I am. That's right. Yeah. I am a good God. I am a good daddy. And I do care about my kids and I do cry with them. That yeah. that's the see, I think that's part of it. it it's when we start to to truly understand what a good father looks like, even if we didn't have one, you know, yeah. look, we can watch TV. I mean, I grew up, you know, watching TV. I watched the Brady Bunch. I saw Mike Brady. Mike Brady was like a good dad. He didn't lose his temper. He didn't throw things. He didn't beat the kids. You know, he didn't storm away. You know, there wasn't crying and tears and drama and all that. So to me, that shifted me into that's a good father. <laughs> he's still able to discipline because he's still disciplined, but yep. he didn't have to do it with all the other stuff because at some point he like, you know, like my dad, my dad got stuck in his Mine stuff. Too. So, so then you, you go looking for this, this, you know, this type, this person who yeah. can kind of show you the compassion and the love, but to, uh to find it in the Bible sometimes, especially in the old Testament, you know, it's kind of hard. A lot of people, it get is stuck hard, on, hard. people, people get stuck on that. <laughs> they do. And you, you know, it took me 50 years to wipe the face of my father completely off the face of God. 
And, mm. and a lot of us get stuck, not because we're looking, we feel so ashamed about ourselves that we're looking for someone to treat us the way we feel about ourselves. So we actually think that we're worthless and a piece of crap. Mm. And so, so we, we act like it and then we let other people treat us like we are. And that's a different kind of stuck. And uh, yeah, but some of us, you know, our view of God in the the Old Testament thing. And I think we've done a huge injustice trying to make the Bible be something that it's not. You know, uh, I, I believe that Jesus is the word of God. uh, And the Bible is this really amazing compilation of human beings struggling to understand the character and nature of God. And, and it's a slow and incremental process. And um, and we want to take their viewpoints as if they're absolutely true. Even, but even in the New Testament, Jesus is changing Moses and Paul's disagreeing with Moses. I mean, actually saying Moses was wrong about this particular mm-hmm. you know thing. And so there is a there is contention between the unfolding view of God because a lot of the view of God in the Old Testament is no different than Baal or Marduk or some Egyptian or Incan, you know, or Odin, Thor and all those. I mean, it's just, it's just this omni being who's, who's somewhere who, if something bad happens, it's because you're being punished. And if something good happens is because you did something right, or you had the right, right magic, you know? Right. And so a lot of people try to get, try to fit some of the disastrous things that people thought about God in the Old Testament and they can't fit it with Jesus. And so they end up having kind of two gods. you got God the Father behind the back of Jesus, who's sort of the bigger God. And then they come up with all kinds of craziness about, you know, the God, the Father, the Old Testament one, who's, who's back there, needs a sacrifice, needs to be appeased, and then pours out all his wrath on his son. Like, what kind of nonsense is that? But it's, yeah. the, it's, it's the nonsense I grew up with. Yeah. And if, if you've got... If you've got a wrong view of God, you're going to you're going to end up trying to perform so that at least you don't go to hell. And uh, and so there's that whole dimension of conversation as well. But a lot of us are stuck. Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about us. Jesus came to change our mind about God. I love that. I do, too. I love that. Yeah, I have I have a quote from George MacDonald. Let me let me find it for you quickly, because. Because it's fantastic. And, and George MacDonald was the guy who led C.S. Lewis into an encounter with Jesus. And he, George MacDonald wrote all kinds of uh, adult fantasy books like uh, Fantasties and Lilith and, and was, you know, pretty much every major author like Mark Twain and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. These folks would all look to George MacDonald as a, a huge influence. So this is a statement of George. Good souls, many will one day be horrified at the things they now believe of God. They can make little progress in the knowing of God while holding evil things true of God. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that says it. That does say it. And you know, when, when I was going through my trying to understand like God, and I would sit there and I would talk to him and, he said to me, he said, Lisa, I haven't changed. He said, I haven't changed. I'm the same God of the Old Testament, of the New Testament, and forever. He goes, I haven't changed. He said, 
But what he brought to my attention, he said, Lisa, can I ask you a question? When your children were little, did you discipline them different? Did you have different rules and regulations for them when they were little? Were you stricter when they were little? Because you wanted to teach them. Because if we really look at what was happening with with Israel, or because they were under Egyptian, they were in Egypt, they forgot who they were. And so there was a, a calling out and a pulling apart. But a lot of the, the stuff that they were doing, a lot of the things that were, were done, I believe it was because their motives, it, half of it was was their idea to go and do these things. Half of these I, I things, because if God is good, if we can say God is good, then there can't be bad in God. He's either all good yeah. or there has to, or, or he can't be good because Correct. you can't be good and be bad. If there's a little shadow of not good, then, then you have a no God good. you cannot trust. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Yep. So if he is good and we sing that song, good, good father, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. Okay. So then we have to come to the understanding. Is it that he is always good? Just like, like Papa was saying in the shack, right? That I am a good God. Then we have to understand that the, the, we have to be able to see the good sometimes in, in some of the discipline that has happened. I mean, we live in a fallen world. So I, 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 I agree with you, but I also want to say there are things attributed to God in the Old Testament that are frankly not good. I agree. Frankly I agree. not good. And I so, agree. Yeah, you know, there is this ongoing revelation of not only the character of God, but an exposing of how how crazy human beings can get uh, about God when, when they become religious. And I mean, and they're stuck, you know, the term God as father is only used like 12 times or 17 times in the entire old Testament, never personally, right? Never personally. And Jesus shows up and starts going, that's my Abba, you know, he's the, and he didn't get that in Jewish synagogue school i mean there's no way because they'd never taught that and far from what we know he's the first person in the history of the jewish communities to ever refer to god as my father and uh, we don't have any record in any historical document uh predating jesus where that was that was ever said that means that that jesus comes to reveal the character and nature of god in a way that we didn't even begin to comprehend throughout the entire hebrew scriptures so when you run into something where, you know, like, like Abraham, what was Abraham's theological training? You know, yeah. he was from Ur <laughs> the Chaldees and yeah. his theological training was the moon god and goddess. Yeah. Nanu, Nanu and Ningal. I always say it sounds like Mork and Mindy. And, um, <laughs> but, but every deity on the planet was bloodthirsty. Yes. Every deity. And, yes. and so you've got this conflict between some parts of Samuel, for example, and a verse in like Second uh, Samuel fourteen fourteen that says, "Our our lives are like water poured out on on the dry grep that just gets absorbed." But God never takes life, mm-hmm. and is always looking for the banished one to be restored. Always yeah. looking for ways that the banished one will be restored. But God does not ever take life. But we've got stories as if God's going like, oh, yes, kill, kill them. Yeah. Kill kill yes. those babies. You know, kill those yeah. 
you know, and we're going, we're trying to fit a concept of good into that, you know, so God had to slowly work with us because God can't just change, change our thinking without no. violating our will. Exactly. You know, and, and we live in a universe in which in order to be able to say no to God, God has got to submit to that or else he's got to force us into thinking that we have free will, but actually don't. And well, as know, soon as you do that, there's no love. Well, if you, if you look at, let's go back to Abraham, because a yeah. lot of people will say, oh, he's such a bad God. You know, look, he wanted Abraham to take his son, his only son, and to Ooh. go and, and crucify him, right? One of my favorite stories. Right? And right? What's, so, what's so great about it is that what, what I believe is like what you were saying, that this was a custom. This was a custom. They sacrificed their children to uh, these gods. Every, everybody in the entire planet. Come on. Yeah. And so so here he said, okay, I'm going to be like these other gods. I'm going to be like these other gods who are demanding your child. But unlike your other gods, I'm going to not take your child. I'm yes. going to bring you to that place. Yep. Yep. But then I'm going to show you that I am not like them. So exactly. Good. Exactly. So this is an education process, right? Yeah. So God, yeah. God... It's like a missionary, right? You, because I'm a missionary kid, mm -hmm. and that that section of scripture, uh, Abraham and Isaac, that was used to slaughter my generation of missionary kids, mm. because because it was used as you need to be, you need to make God such a priority that you're willing to sacrifice your children on the altar of the mission, right? Mm. Yeah, and that's how it was presented to us. That look. This was a test for Abraham to see if God was really the priority, that if he loved God more than his own child. And, and, he, and he put Abraham, we did, we defined it that way. That's not what's going on in that story at all. And I'm, mm -hmm. I, I agree with the way you're looking at it. Let me just say it a little bit different. Abraham doesn't even, like when God says, sacrifice your child, he, he, he's like, okay. <laughs> and that, that tells us that this is the custom of the world. And, it, and yeah. it's true. If, you, if you're an archaeologist and you studied history and you go to any place on the planet during this time, whether it's to the Incans and the Aztecs or whether it's to the Norse gods or the Mesopotamian gods or the Egyptian gods, all of them are set up as sacrificial systems. And the highest sacrifice is an unblemished child. Right. And so so for God to say, OK, Abraham, you're so lost in your darkness, but I have to speak your language for you to even begin to comprehend. Right. Yep. You don't go. We didn't go to New Guinea where I grew up and we didn't go there and speak English, expecting them. I was like, what's wrong with them? No, we have to learn their language. What's Abraham's language? Sacrifice. Yes. And so this is one of the first things that God's going to teach Abraham about reality. So he says, okay, sacrifice your child. So, okay. And yep. not only does Abraham buy into it, Isaac has to buy into it. Yep. And a lot of people think he's like 12 years old, but he's not, he's like 30. And, um, and so it's like, oh, okay. So he takes him up to the mountain. The knife is coming down and God says, stop. And it says, this is when Abraham learned that God was Jehovah Jireh. First time that's used in the yes. Hebrew scriptures. And it means the God who will provide himself. 
And so, so this is when Abraham learned that, and God is saying, Abraham, a couple things. One, I don't do child sacrifice. I don't do child sacrifice. Second thing, if you, if you need a sacrifice, I will provide myself. Jehovah Jireh. I will provide myself. And, but I know you're still stuck in all of your, your, your dark myths. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one day there will be a lamb that will put an end to sacrifice, but here for now, here's a goat, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. that's all wrapped up inside that story. So yeah. yes, it's, it's to move Abraham to a different understanding and revelation of God. And, and we're so stuck with a bad Evil, well, we would never say that. We would say that that God is is angry and disappointed and all that kind of stuff, you know. And, and we're like, we're nothing but sinners and we're terrible people. Correct. Yeah. And and so we've got all this mythology that hasn't moved that far from where Abraham was. Yeah. And it's like, come on, really? The whole point of that is to teach us who the character and nature of God is. What who is this God? I mean even by the time Jesus shows up, who's the clearest declaration of the character and nature of God, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the Father. right? Yes. So the Father and I are one. There is only one God, but that oneness is comprised of three persons in a great dance of mutuality and love. And, and it's like, you want to see the Father, you look at me. That's Jesus. And and we're going like, well, what about the God of the Old Testament? And and it's like the God of the Old Testament largely was a mythic, imaginary, horrible, narcissistic, ab- abusive deity that was, they were trying to move out of their classic, you know, Baal and Marduk and all the, all the gods they had right. towards something that was real. And, and here's the beauty part of it. And it's like... And God, God stayed inside that journey with them. Yes. Even though God would get a really bad reputation that is still going on to this day. But, if, but then again, if we look, if we look at what Jesus said, Jesus says, I didn't come to change the law. I came to make the law better. I came to help you to live out the law because if we really look at what the law is, the only law that 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 God actually gave were the Ten Commandments. The rest of it was a bunch of what the Israelites decided to do, what Moses, what they decided to do, and, and God was trying to separate them. But if if you look at it, it says the first is about loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul. It's basically keeping God and loving God. The next is loving each other. Right. That's really what it is. The whole yeah. law is love. It's wrapped well, in Well, Paul love. says that. Paul says the entire law can be reduced to one word. Love. Love. That's right. Yep. And and so and what Jesus came to do is not to go like, oh, now we've got to go back to the Ten Commandments. He's like, no, I'm going to take this law that's on the outside that is that is judging you, and I'm going to write it on your heart so that it, it comes from the inside out, so that there's a transformation of your character so that the way of your being starts to match the truth of your being. I'm going to reveal to you the truth of your being. And then that law will be written on, on flesh, not mm-hmm. on some external thing that, that then judges you or sets up a system of performance. 
No, my deepest longing because of the truth of who I am, because I'm made in the image and nature of God, right? I'm made in the image and likeness of God. So, so my deepest truth is to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's actually an expression of my nature. It's all the lies that I have believed that have clouded that up and told me, whispered to me, you're nothing but a piece of crap, you know, mm-hmm. that that's the truth of your being. The truth of your being and, and our theology didn't help some of it, you know, like it came along and whispered, well, you're just depraved. You're utterly depraved. And it's like, then how are you going to expect me to perform some sort of righteousness out of a nature that's utterly depraved? And, and what we've discovered is that that theology was false. It was wrong. We are made, the deepest truth about you as a human being is that you're made in the image and likeness of God. But until you see the truth about who you are, you're going to live out what you actually believe about yourself. And if you think you're a piece of crap, that's what you're going to feel like is down below, you know, and life, life tells you you are, abuse tells you you are, you know, that's, now we're talking about all the different ways we get stuck. Mm-hmm. And and we get stuck in our heads because we think that how, what people have communicated by what they did to us, or we then perpetrated ourselves, that that tells us what the truth of our being is, rather than Jesus going like, I, you look at me, I'm the truth of your being. That's Everything right. that is true about me is true about you, because you're made in my image and likeness. And if, let, let, I'm just going to go back to the shock for a second, because there's the scene where Mackenzie goes to speak to wisdom and wisdom says, well, you can do a better job than God. You come and sit. Yeah. Because what has happened is, is that the way that everything was, was created. That's why when Jesus came, Jesus wasn't mad at the sinners. Jesus wasn't mad at the prostitutes. He wasn't mad at the people who were sick. He was really angry at the people who supposedly knew God, supposedly read the Torah, supposedly understood what what the law was about. But what he saw were a bunch of people who were ruling and who were keeping people in in a place of, of, of imprisonment. Yeah. Because they tried to say that they were greater, that only they could. And that's why I believe that when Jesus came, he tore down that curtain so that there would be no more separation, that we don't have to go through people to get through God. The only person yeah. we have to go through is through Jesus Christ to the, get to the, the Father. The only sense of separation that was ever existentially true, that is in our experience, was separation that human beings have crafted as a way to stay in power because all religion needs separation. Mm-hmm. That's where all religions begin. And, and sadly, a lot of Christianity starts with separation, no different yeah. than any other religion on the planet. And it's like, uh, no, there's no separation. There's never been separation, but if, but as a person thinks in their heart, so is their experience, Right. And a lot of us go like, well, I feel separated. Well, it's true. That's our, that's our experience based on what? Based on believing the lie of separation. Religion needs separation in order to have power because then yes. it can tell you how to get unseparated. You know? And so everything becomes a formula to get unseparated. And, um, and, and I'm talking from experience as a missionary kid, preacher's kid who grew up inside 
the embrace of the modern evangelical community, you know? So, and, and with all the, the good things that I got out of it, there is so much disaster that was woven into the theology that, that really put me into a bad place for a long time. And it took a lot of excruciating work to climb out of it. And, but that process also healed my heart and, you know, so there's a God who's in the middle of it all involved in the details of our lives in the middle of our stuckness. And, and, um, that cave scene, by the way, I'm, I have a, I have a bunch of friends on death row in Tennessee and, Mm -hmm. uh, unit two. And we've been trying to get the governor uh, of Tennessee to go down and just pray with the guys. Um, because some of these guys are the freest people I've ever met in my life. You know, Terry King has been on death row for 35 years now and um, just waiting, waiting for his sentence, his date. And they've upped the dates. I mean, some of my friends have already been executed. And, um, mm. and, and these are people who own what they've done. They, they love Jesus. They, like I said, they're some of the freest people I've ever seen met. And uh, so Terry, when I first met him, I met him because of the shack, because the shack's gone through death row and, and just done its thing, you know. And um, 